0: Mark chapter 8 verse 27, that's page 50 in your scripture journal. So that's one really nice thing about the scripture journal is I can tell you what page we're on because we're all using the same book today. Uh, you're going to have plenty of time to get there and I'm going to ask that you hold your place with your thumb or your finger. Looking at that is actually going to be the last thing that we're going to do together this morning. Um, so we're going to start today in the book of Mark. We've been talking about doing this for a while. The last big book that we worked through together was Exodus. You guys may remember we wrapped that up, I think, mid-March of this year. And then we took some time to do sort of an oversight series on what does it mean to follow Jesus, to redefine and re-understand what discipleship meant to Jesus, what it meant to his first disciples, who we can better understand kind of as apprentices. And how does that translate to us? Because a lot of us have experienced some holes in the discipleship model that we've worked through in our own lives. And so we've talked about following Jesus, learning from him, becoming like him, doing what he did in our community. Uh, And I think the very best way probably to orient ourselves around his person and the works that he did is to simply read one of the four accounts that's given in the New Testament of Jesus' life and times. So that's what we're going to do in Mark. We're going to begin the book of Mark today, and it's going to be a pretty long journey for us. Now, if you're like me... When I say a journey, maybe that sounds exciting to you. I'm sort of in the minority in that I really enjoy the traveling process. I like road trips, I like gas stations, I like airports, I like airplanes. I like them less after the pandemic. I don't know if that happened to you. I don't know if they have like shrunk the seats when we all weren't on the airplanes, but it feels smaller to me now than it used to. But I still think it's fun. It's fun to go new places. It's fun to mess with time zones and all that stuff. It doesn't always work out that way, right? I'm an optimist in my family. I often get excited about things that don't end up being very fun, uh, and then I have this sort of existential moment of like, is anything real? Like, Is anything ever going to be good again? My wife, on the other hand, is, is more of a realist and tends to get essentially what she expected, and she helps me in that way. When I was in college, I took a lot of road trips, back when I didn't need a lot of sleep, when I could just survive on Fritos and canned soda. And so one of those trips, I went to the Grand Canyon, drove all the way from Dallas. My friends and I didn't rent a single hotel room, There were four of us in the car, and we rotated shifts of driving and sleeping, and that's all we did the whole time, and that's not safe, and you shouldn't do it, and God protected us, but we made it all the way to the Grand Canyon and back to Dallas, Texas in like four days, and I can't remember any of it because I was delirious, but it was cool. I have pictures. Um, I took some road trips to Colorado. One of those trips, my wife and I got engaged, Um, and right after Andy and I were married, we made the decision to drive from the Dallas area where we lived east to Gulf Shores, Alabama for our honeymoon. And that was a really long drive. You just get on I-10 and you go east and you don't stop until you get to the beach. Um, And it wasn't long because Andy was there. That was the only good part of the drive. The thing that made the drive worse than it had to be is I had a bright idea of how I was going to help make this journey really fun. I had this big plan. I would thought about it weeks in advance. I was going to share with my new wife a thing that I really enjoyed doing myself, which is listening to narrative fiction books read aloud. And so I chose Herman Melville's epic classic, Moby Dick for the drive to the beach and back. I don't know. I thought there's the ocean, right? It's as close as I'm going to get to the salt and the waves, and maybe I can connect with Captain Ahab and Ishmael and Starbuck and Queequeg. But the trip about this was the audio recording that I got, I didn't want to pay for one, so I got one on Spotify, and the only one Spotify had, and I haven't checked. Maybe this is still the case. The only one Spotify had, had the author, or excuse me, the narrator read Captain Ahab's voice, which half the book is him talking. He read that guy's voice just like the pirate from SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) You guys know what I'm talking about? Are you ready, kids? That was Captain Ahab. Every time he climbs to the prow of the boat and swears at the ocean and the sky and the whale. And I just kept asking Andy, can you believe that this is happening? She got really sick of it really fast. She put her own headphones in in the car. Um, So anyway, I... It wasn't the same person, but it sounded similar, and it made that trip longer and longer, but I felt committed. I had read a lot of the narrative classics. I thought, I'm going to read Moby Dick, Um, and if you don't know, it's not romantic. I, I want to share this with you. This is an example of how Captain Ahab talks in this book. He says, and I'm not going to do the SpongeBob voice. I debated it, but I don't think I can make it all the way through. He said, what I've dared, I've willed, and what I've willed, I'll do. They think me mad, Starbuck does, but I'm demoniac. I am madness maddened that wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. The prophecy was that I should be dismembered and I, I lost this leg, but I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. It's pure romance, right? There's nothing that sets the honeymoon mood like being jarred awake, by Captain Ahab swearing at a giant whale as you lay in the beach, uh, in the sun, on the beach with your new wife. That didn't uh, work well for my wife, but you know what? We made it, we we celebrate nine years on Wednesday, that feels exciting to us, and so you get through these kinds of things. But road trips are like that, flights are like that, things go wrong, the charger in the back of the seat in front of you doesn't work, right? Your flight is delayed, you run out of gas, you get a flat tire, somebody gets sick, or they have to stop and go to the bathroom too many times. And so when I tell you today that we're beginning a long journey, it's understandable if some of us begin to think, how long is this going to take? And I've gotten this before as a pastor. Just a little bit of pushback now and again on how long we sometimes take to work through books of the Bible. What I want you to understand is, if things go the way that we plan, the book of Mark should take us right at three years to finish. And here's why I think that's cool. You may go, oh, I'm going to be so sick of Jesus by then. I don't think so, okay? I've known him for a while. I think you're probably going to keep liking him. He's amazing. But the three years that it will take us to journey through this book will be similar to the three years that the disciples actually spent with Jesus. The course of time that the book of Mark covers, because it doesn't include a genealogy, nor does it include the Luke um, birth story, the Christmas story. The book of Mark from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 16 covers about three years of Jesus with his disciples. And I think that as we walk with Jesus and we walk with his disciples, we're going to realize how immersive this experience was for these men which then challenges us because they end up betraying him. They turn their backs on him. When they have an opportunity to stand up, they fall down instead. And I feel that, I expect, based on the study and the preparation that I've done, that as we get to those dramatic points in the story, it's going to feel more real to you. I don't want to race through this like a textbook. I want to live in Mark with you guys, and I want to do it for the next three years. So we will likely wrap up Mark sometime in late 2025. That's the plan right now. Um, and unlike a road trip, unlike a long journey by plane back to Texas or the Midwest or wherever you're from, this journey is more important than the destination. The end of Mark is not more important than the beginning. Every story about Jesus that comes to us from the book of Mark is intended to communicate something real to us about a real person who really lived and really was God and really did die and then really lived again after that. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher, and he wasn't only representing God as a prophet. He was himself, God in the flesh, and he did things that nobody else could do and has never done since. So I hope that's exciting to you. When we worked through our paradigm of how spiritual formation works, I explained to you that I think many modern churches have overemphasized and spent too much time probably in the epistles as compared to the gospels. And I want to help counterbalance that. I think we're going to be able to do that as a church and really interact with Jesus for an extended period of time. As we work forward, interspersed with these sort of four to eight week chunks of the book of Mark will be topical series that will introduce spiritual practices. So we're not changing any of that. I told you we were going to go there this fall. We're going to probably wait until after our soft opening in September to begin the first of those practices just so there's continuity as we move between campuses. But we're going to work through things like silence and solitude as disciplines. We're going to talk about prayer We're going to talk about things like dealing with your past, um, how to grapple with your family of origin, how to understand if God's put a specific calling on your life or the gifts that he's given you as a member of his body. And I think you'll find that the interplay between Mark's account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the interplay between that and the practices, uh, will we'll be some of the best soil maybe that you've ever had to prepare yourself to follow Jesus, to actually do what Jesus actually said to do. So that's where we're headed. Um, you're gonna wanna hang on to that Mark Scripture Journal for a while, and I know some of you guys were still getting yours in your hands when I said this earlier, but please put your name in it, maybe an email, maybe a phone number so we can get it back to you. Uh, we wanna make sure that you get that. So here's what I wanna do today, okay? I know we have kids in the room. I appreciate you guys being patient about that. I'm glad. I grew up sitting through services as a child, and it was an important part of my formation, so I'm taking that into account. And I want to move relatively quickly. I just want to share with you three what I'm going to call motifs you can think of them as themes or kind of common threads that run through the book of Mark. If I can set this foundation for you and ask that you maybe take some notes today, you're going to see these three things rise to the surface. At least two of these three will show up every single week that we're in the book of Mark. So here they are. The first motif that is unique to Mark's gospel and that you should expect to see and hear is Peter's voice the voice of the disciple and eventual apostle Peter, Peter, son of Jonas. Simon Peter, Peter who was called Cephas, uh, meaning rock, Jesus gave him that name and then later uses a turn of phrase about building his church on that rock. The second is the presence of human longing. This will appear again and again. Almost every time Jesus encounters people, especially in the first half of Mark, they come to him with a question. They want him to be good. They want him to be someone they can trust. They want him to have something that they want, but they aren't sure if he does. And so they're feeling him out for about eight and a half chapters. We watch all kinds of different people approach Jesus, misunderstand him, and then he clarifies who he is and how he can meet those longings. And then finally, Jesus' identity is the third motif. The book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, progressively reveals who Jesus is. In the opening chapter, nobody gets it. Even his disciples don't understand. It takes until about the eighth chapter for them to begin to understand. And then past that point, Jesus starts kind of sprinting toward the cross in his ministry, and it gets harder and even more confusing for his disciples who've just barely grasped the, the concept that he actually is the Messiah. So let me just speak to you briefly about each of these three and then we'll be done today. The first is Peter's voice. Peter's voice is all over the book of Mark because, spoiler alert, Mark the evangelist who wrote the book of Mark never met Jesus in person. You may not know that. If you didn't do Bible drill as a kid, if you didn't grow up in the church, that's totally okay. I didn't either. But sometimes we just assume that the four Gospels must have been written by four out of the 12 disciples. Mark the Evangelist was not around when Jesus was on the earth. Mark, who wrote the Gospel according to Mark, did not personally witness any of the things that he wrote in his book. So the question then stands to reason to ask, whose perspective is he writing about in his Gospel account? Well, the answer to that is that Mark wrote from the perspective of his own rabbi, Peter. This is why we hear Peter's voice again and again. The early church tradition, the first one or two hundred years when the church fathers were writing and trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this global church thing work? There was a widely accepted tradition that the way that Mark's gospel came to be is Peter traveled throughout the Roman Empire telling the story of Jesus, sharing the gospel. If you were to read the book of Mark front to back, it would take you something like two hours to do that. And it's safe to assume that this was essentially a two-hour presentation that Peter made over and over and over and over again. At some point, Peter, who decided to take Jesus' commands to go into the world and make disciples, Peter took that literally, Peter met a man named Mark and he invited Mark to be his own disciple. Peter, who now saw himself being commissioned as a new kind of rabbi after Jesus ascended and left, Peter turned to Mark and many others and said, if you'll follow me, I'll teach you the way of the master. I'll teach you the commandments, I'll teach you the teachings, I'll share the parables with you, and I'll give you my perspective because I knew the man. So, why does this matter? Well, you'll first notice a few things when you read through Mark's book. You'll notice that Peter is named many times, which I think is interesting. A lot of times in a specific story, Mark will write Peter and the other disciples, and you kind of start to go, okay, is Peter like a extra cool disciple? Is he the disciple of the month? I don't know why he keeps getting his name called out and the other guys don't. Well, it's because these are his stories. This is him giving firsthand account of where he was standing and what he could see and who was around him and what it felt like and what he remembers hearing and seeing with his own eyes and ears. This makes sense when you remember that Peter spent the last part of his life walking through the Roman Empire, passing on the life and teachings of Jesus. Of course, many of the stories give us Peter's perspective or include Peter's reactions to Jesus. We are, in a way, reading the journal of Peter, which I think is really cool and very exciting. Second, you'll also notice that though Peter shows up a lot in the book, Peter is not the hero of the book of Mark, not at all. He does not come out looking like a good guy. Even at the end, it's a little unclear if he's even going to follow through on the commandments of Jesus. Most of the times that we hear from Peter, he's either upset or he's in a hurry and he's trying to outrun Jesus, or he's actually standing at odds with Jesus. The verses that we'll read later this morning, you already heard Travis Keeler read a few minutes ago, is some of those famous passages that exist about Jesus and Peter, where Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, who is God, and Jesus ends up calling him the Satan, God's enemy. It's very dramatic. Well, it's interesting to me that Peter would choose to include that. Isn't that interesting to you? Sort of like when you come home from school, your parents would pick you up when you were in junior high or elementary school, and they'd say, how was school today? And you're thinking, well, I spent about four hours in the principal's office, but I'm not going to bring that up because mom doesn't seem mad, so she must not know. So you would just say, fine, right? Are you like me? Fine. What did you learn? I don't know. And then your parents are like, great. seems like the public school system is really hitting a home run with you, kiddo. Peter could do that. Peter had every opportunity to edit and tweak the version of the story that he told, but he doesn't. He leaves his follies in. In fact, it seems like he almost goes out of his way to highlight how misled he was, how often he misunderstood, that he didn't quite get it until the very end. I think Peter did that because he understands what it means to be a person, that you and I are like Peter. We're less like Jesus than we are like Peter. We're more like Peter than Jesus most of the time. We don't understand, we get confused, we get upset, we're in a hurry, and we find ourselves at odds. And I think what Peter wants us to understand is that if Peter can be saved and used by God, than anybody can. And I think you'll find that that'll be a recurring theme. In the first few hundred years of the church, the fact that Peter and Mark together chose not to manipulate this story and chose not to turn Peter or the other disciples into a hero became the basis for why Mark's gospel, what we're gonna begin studying today, was the most widely used and accepted gospel in all of the churches. There came a point about 150 years after Jesus was gone where the first and second generation apostles were dead. People didn't live as long back then as they do now. They didn't have healthcare and all the other stuff that we do. They didn't eat kale or whatever. I don't know. So they would die, and then the stories became kind of collected orally. But the further you get from that original source, the more those stories tend to change a little bit here and there. You've experienced this. You sit in the same conversation as somebody else on your team at work, and you guys walk away hearing two different things. You have to come back to the table and reevaluate. Imagine how easy it would be to do that if you're walking alongside someone on a dusty street under the beating down sun, you're hungry, and there's all kinds of noise around you. So, it became important to collect these stories and to try to put them on paper so that everybody would be following the same Jesus. Mark's gospel was the first one to be accepted to do that because it seemed to corroborate so well with the oral tradition that surrounded the life and times of Jesus. To this point, and I'm going to nerd out for like two minutes here. So, if you don't like church history, you can close your eyes and plug your ears, whatever you want to do. I think this is important. Eusebius. Eusebius is a guy who was an early church father, and he was an elder in the church at Caesarea. He wrote this about Mark's account of Peter's gospel in 330 A.D. This is about 300 years after Jesus has ascended and the church was born. Eusebius says this. He says, Note how scrupulously the disciples refused to record those things that might have given the impression of their own fame. Notice how they handed down in writing numerous slanders against themselves to unforgetting ages and accusations of sins which no one in later years would have ever known about unless hearing it in their own voice. If it was their aim to deceive and to adorn their master with false words, they would never have written these demeaning accounts of his, Jesus, pain and agony. That he was disturbed in his spirit and that they themselves forsook or abandoned him and fled. Or that Peter, the apostle and disciple who was chief of them all, denied him three times. They would not have done this unless they had an extraordinarily high standard for truth-telling. So what you are going to study, what we're going to be reading, what we're walking through together is true. And it hasn't changed. And even the takeaways of the early church fathers like 17 or 1800 years ago are exactly the same as the takeaways that we're going to have. We are connected to an ancient tradition of following Jesus of Nazareth. And Mark's gospel is the absolute best source material that there is and as i've said to you now a couple of times peter's voice comes through loud and clear faults and all so you'll notice that as we work through this book you'll notice peter's voice second is human longing If you were here with us last week for our final Church in the Park, you may remember that I highlighted for you how Jesus meets our human longings in a way that our culture cannot. And I laid out for you six longings that we have and the ways that Jesus does not come to take those things away but to actually fulfill them. We didn't have screens or handouts or anything for you last week, so you probably didn't write those down. I want to run through them quickly for you. These are the six longings of humanity that will come up. Every single time Jesus opens his mouth, every time he lays his hands on anybody to heal them or love them or forgive them. The first is meaning. The question that meaning asks is, what am I here for? Jesus answers that question. The second is satisfaction. The question that satisfaction asks is, how can I matter? How can I know that I make a difference? How can I be a part of something bigger than me? Every generation has a different way of asking that question, but we're all looking for that. Nobody is truly satisfied to go off grid, live by themselves, and never see another person again. They might be running from a hurt, there might be a wound behind that, but they won't find satisfaction in that area. Jesus alone leads us to that. Third is freedom. The question that freedom asks is, who will I choose to serve? You're gonna serve somebody, maybe you don't know that. You're gonna make somebody else's ideals your ideals. You don't have any original thoughts, sorry if you didn't know that. You're gonna adopt somebody else's perspective. Whose is it gonna be? Who will you stand for that's not just yourself? Identity is number four. Identity asks the question, who am I uniquely? not just where do I come from or where am I going, but who, what makes me, me. Five is hope. We long for hope and we ask this question, how can tomorrow be better than today? What choices can I make? How can I make decisions that would contribute to that? Or what other things will happen to me that will make tomorrow better or worse? Where do I put my hope and do I even have hope? And then finally, six is justice. And justice asks the question, will good triumph over evil? These six longings, are the same things that every human heart and mind has wanted since the beginning of time. And we had them when things were good with God at the beginning. But then we broke that relationship and we've been spending the thousands and thousands of years since then trying to replace what God gave us freely. Jesus comes onto the scene and he answers these six questions and he communicates the fulfillment of these six things. Jesus' agenda is not to remove these things from you, contrary to what may be popular belief but to give them to you in their fullest and most real forms. And so every week we will see Jesus speak to these six things, we'll see him interact with them, at least one of these longings, and this will really be where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us. And then part three, the third theme, the third motif, is Jesus' identity. We will discuss this in a lot greater detail next week, but I want you to know that a motif through the book of Mark is what theologians would call progressive revelation of Jesus Christ the progressive revealing, the slow, steady process of Jesus pulling the curtain back on who he really is and what he's really here to do. All that means is as we journey with Peter and the other 11 disciples around Judea with Jesus through the book of Mark, we start out with no idea who Jesus is. Now, you and I would argue we know who Jesus is. We obviously think enough of him that we put his name on a banner that's behind me every week that I preach. But if you can try to suspend your disbelief for a minute and really enter into fresh next week, Try to understand, if I knew nothing about Christ, that the story that Mark tells is sufficient to move you from knowing that Jesus is nobody to now you know that he's at least a rabbi. Then you move from agreeing that, okay, he's a rabbi to now maybe he really is divine. And then you finally move from agreeing that he could be the son of God to understanding that he holds the office of Messiah. And that's the hardest one because if Jesus is the Messiah, that means that you need to be set free from something and he came to do that for you. That's where things get really personal. So we're not going to jump all the way there. We're not going to try to get you there in 20 minutes and 15 Bible verses. We're going to take a long time to go with Jesus and let him show us who he is at the pace that he chooses to reveal that. So if you're here today and you've already made your mind up that Jesus is who he says he is, then great. This will be a lot of fun. This will serve to reinforce and introduce you and reintroduce you to who Jesus really is and what he really said and what he really stands for. And we're going to preach the whole thing, every verse The easy parts, the ones that you've heard a million times, and maybe some stories that you didn't even know were in here. We're going to attack them head on. We're going to let them speak to us about who Jesus is, and we're going to try to model our life after him. But if you're not sure, if you're unconvinced of who Jesus is, you think he was maybe bare minimum a historical figure, but you're not so sure about the rabbi thing or the God thing or even the Messiah thing, then that's okay. The gospel according to Peter, as written down by Mark the Evangelist, is designed for people just like you. Not to change your mind, not to just convince you, but to present you with evidence that demands a verdict. Even if you feel convinced that Jesus is a hoax, or maybe that he's only a good teacher, I think that you are in the right place. This series is as much for those of us who are not convinced that Jesus is God as it is for those of us who are. And so if you're here and and you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you have a spouse, a coworker, a friend, somebody who's gotten really, really close beginning to ask questions about Jesus but isn't quite sure how to do that and maybe you're not in a position where you feel that you have the time or the resources or the expertise to walk them through the scriptures this would be a fabulous beginning point for someone like that I would love to know that half the people in the room every week really don't think Jesus is real and maybe they have a big mean scowl on their face and they're just here to disprove me that's fine I was a youth minister for a long time, so I can handle that attitude, okay? I would love to know that people are giving us an opportunity, and this is my commitment to you. My promise is that every week we will consider and speak to everybody in the room, and that we will do that without calling anybody out or playing any kind of gotcha games with people's ideologies or perspectives. My objective is to just simply get people to take Jesus seriously for long enough for him to begin to work, and I think that he will. So, I want to land the plane today by looking at Mark chapter 8. You've had your finger there for a long time. It's probably numb by now. Uh, We're going to look at verses 27 through 38, what Travis read to us. And what I want you to understand is, as we look at this, I'm sharing with you the climax. This is the pinnacle of the whole book. Mark is shaped like a triangle. And beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, it's an uphill working, where Jesus is slowly revealing who he is, and then we get to Mark chapter 8. And there's this incredible encounter with, you guessed it, Peter, And then everything after that is the downhill run into Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and the beginning of the church. So I'm spoiling this for you. You know that it's probably going to be 18 months before we get to Mark 8, right? So you won't even remember what I'm going to say today. That's fine with me. That's fine with you. But I want you to see this moment, and I want you to understand that this is what we're working towards until we get there. Listen to this in verse 27 of Mark 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples a question. So they're walking just walking on the on the dirt road who do people say that i am now at this point the disciples have been in lots of big crowds with jesus sometimes thousands of people at once and they're hearing rumors They're hearing probably from their family members that are writing them letters or that are coming out to see Jesus and bump into Andrew and Peter that they haven't seen in a few months since they left the boat and followed Jesus. So Jesus knows. These guys have been hearing a lot of perspectives from different people who probably don't just come right up to Jesus and tell him, we think you're fake or we think you're Elijah or we think you're a reincarnation of whoever from the Old Testament. So Jesus asks the question and they answer him. They say, well, we've heard some people say that you might be John the Baptist, which that'll make sense next week. We'll talk a little bit about John the Baptist, you'll understand John was dead by this point, so it makes sense that people might have thought that Jesus was him reincarnated. Others, people, others say Elijah. These are probably really good Jewish people who understand the Old Testament, the Torah, the Tanakh, and they think that they're waiting for the reincarnation of Elijah to usher in the end of times. And other people say that you might be one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them collectively. He turns to them and he says, But who do you say that I am? Now this is the big test. This is the moment where they have seen Jesus do miracles, multiply bread, heal the sick, cast out demons, speak with authority, quote the Old Testament, and say that it was about him. He's claimed to be God. He's taught them that that's what he's here to do. And this is the moment where he turns and asks, did you get it? All of those times, did it connect? And did you understand? And Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one who came to save the world to set things right, to fix what's broken, to put everything back how it was before sin entered into the picture. Verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that doesn't mean not to tell anybody that Jesus was around. What that means is Jesus did not want the disciples to communicate that he was the Messiah yet. It was bad enough that he was hinting at it now and again. It was already starting to rouse the Pharisees and the Sadducees and convince them that Jesus needed to be killed, but Jesus knew that his time to die hadn't come yet. There were still more works to be done, more teachings to give, And so he quiets them all down, but he does confirm that that's correct. Then he began to teach them, as they're still walking, he's saying, okay, you know who I am now. If I'm the Messiah, the Son of Man, Peter remembers it happening this way. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man had to suffer many things, that he had to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests of Israel, and even the scribes, and that he would be killed. But then after three days, he would rise again. And he said this plainly. So Peter remembers, this was one time when everybody should have got it, and we didn't get it. Jesus did it as clear as day, and the disciples still don't understand. So Peter steps up. He grabs Jesus, and he just says, hey, can you come here for a second? Can we just walk together? You can't say stuff like this. You can't go around telling people that you're going to be rejected. You can't tell these disciples that you're going to die. We don't know exactly why Peter rebukes him. I think, because this is from Peter's perspective, and many commentaries would agree with this idea, that Peter still finds Jesus' gospel offensive. He hasn't quite gotten on board with the idea that this is a countercultural, spiritually revolutionary concept. It's not that Peter's upset that Jesus is gonna die and he's gonna miss him. That's oftentimes how this story is told. Peter is saying to Jesus, don't talk like that. That's not your place. You're a rabbi, be a good rabbi. What does Jesus say? (laughs) Jesus turns to him and he looks and sees the disciples and he rebukes Peter, which means he didn't speak softly. He was nice and loud and clear. And he said, you need to get behind me. Satan. You need to get behind me, enemy. You are not doing what I'm here to do. You're setting your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man instead. Jesus is communicating, he's implying, doesn't matter if people don't like me, doesn't matter if I have to die, doesn't matter if I don't have some awesome kingdom established on the earth by the time that I'm done. I know what I'm here to do, and your mind is on the wrong things. And then he calls the crowd to him. So there's probably this big vanguard of people that are either way out front or way behind him that allow Jesus to work with just his twelve disciples, his Talmudim. And then Jesus calls everybody in and he stops and he does this teaching. He says, if anybody would come after me. So here's the deal, right? I just told you guys, I'm the son of God. I'm gonna die. This is my destiny. If you wanna be a part of what I'm doing, here's what it takes. Deny yourself. Denounce yourself publicly. Like, renounce, like disown your idea of who you are. Be done with it. And then take up your cross and then you'll need to follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. He is directly speaking to Peter's concerns. He's saying, Peter, I love you, but here you go. You decided to open your mouth, so you get to be today's object lesson. If you want to save your life, like Peter's trying to get me to save mine and his, you're going to end up losing it anyway. It's a losing fight. But if instead you lean into that reality, that it's got to go somewhere, and you spend it on the right things, then you won't lose what matters. It's this amazing teaching in Jesus' life. He goes on to say, what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? He's looking at Peter, you guys. He's going, Peter, what would it look be like if I gave up all this ministry and everything I came to do just to make people more comfortable with me? Is that really what you want, Peter? Would that really benefit us as a group? Is that really what we're doing, what we're here to teach, what we're here to do? And I believe that Peter slowly begins to understand that he's been pretty far out of line. Jesus goes on and says whoever is ashamed of me and of my words among this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Church I believe that these words were burned into Peter's mind and probably even more so than Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him three times before the uh, rooster crowed that morning that Jesus was crucified. I believe that these words were what were in Peter's head. What drove him deeper and deeper into his shame because Jesus says to Peter, when you deny me, Peter, you're going to deny me. And when you do that, when you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then I'm ashamed of you. And I think that's why it is so shocking to Peter when Jesus pulls him back in after his resurrection and says, I'm not done with you yet. Along with Peter's perspective and personal journey with Jesus and in addition to the six longings of the human heart, every week before we get to Mark 8, we'll be working uphill toward the verses that we just read. And every week after, we'll progress forward out of those verses. This is the moment of the gospel according to Mark. God willing, by the time we get to these verses sometime next summer or in early 2024, you'll be as inspired by those verses as Peter and the rest of the apprentices were. In its context, it's electric. I mean, it's, to throw back to Captain Ahab and the whale. This is the moment when Jesus climbs to the front of the boat and says, "I vow to dismember my dismemberer." The great prophecy of Genesis 3 that Jesus would come to crush the head of the snake but that it would bite his heel. That's the idea, and it's all happening right here in real time. So why do we need Mark's gospel? We need Mark's gospel because we need Jesus' teachings desperately. More than anything else, we need them straight, we need them uncut, we need them unfiltered, and we need them frequently. We need to study the word of Jesus and the works of Jesus together, and we need to be instructed in the way of Jesus so that you and I can learn new stories to replace the ones our culture has handed us. We need stories that are not just compelling, but that are true and that are worth staking our lives on. The teachings of Jesus are sufficient for apprenticeship, and at True North Church, it's all about Jesus, so a book like Mark is right on target for who we are and what we're all about. So this is the invitation. Come along with Peter and the other apprentices of Jesus and bring your longings. Bring the questions that you have about your identity and your freedom and hope and justice in the world. Jesus has an answer, a clear answer for you. You can bring the longings that you think are already being met and even the ones that you're still looking for something to fulfill. And as you go, you will find out who Jesus really is. Not who the church says he is not who you saw in whatever TV show or movie. You will hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth from himself, and you'll find out that he is who he says he is, and then he'll change your life. So that's where we're headed, and I hope that you'll come along. Let me pray for you guys. Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning. I hope, Lord, that as we anticipate where we're headed in this book, um, that you would be really faithful to us, and that you would help us remember, God, that... uh, Our walk with you is not about hearing great sermons, but it's about being submerged, immersed in your word, God, and submitted to your spirit in prayer, communication. I pray that as we go, you would inspire us to be um, with you daily, truly with you daily, God. Not in some dramatic, grandiose way that we can blog about, but in the simple, quiet moments here and there, and sometimes in the chaos, God, when we're out of options. We love you, and we trust you, and we give you the remainder of our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.